I want to preface this today by saying that um, as I was thinking about it this week, the texts and theme of this Sunday strike at the very heart of the gospel message. And as I was reflecting on it myself, I was aware of how crucial the message is in our culture at this particular time. Hold this in mind as we work our way through this this morning. When new folks join the ranks of Christ's church, they learn the mission statement. We seek to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves. And they also learn the four core values that undergird our life together. Worship is the core of our life. We live and practice dynamic hospitality. We welcome and affirm diversity. And we strive for excellence in all that we do. These mission and value statements are derived from Scripture. And from our point of view, they strike at the heart of the church's witness over the centuries. I suppose you might say these form our version of the non-negotiables undergirding the Christian faith. They're certainly not exhaustive of all the things we might say about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But these honor the core of the gospel as Jesus lived it and modeled it. So, for instance, these stated commitments will inform our practice of the open communion table. Whenever communion is served as Christ's church, you'll hear the instructions that our table is open to everyone since we believe Jesus modeled that behavior himself, as in this morning's passage from Luke, for instance. That's a story about communion in a, from one vantage point. There shall be no impediment to God's invitation. Period. If you are within earshot of our voice, the invitation is for you. Come as you will, come as you are, and of course, don't be surprised if you find yourself leaving a bit different. I mean, that is what Jesus said in his parable, is it not? I have an old friend, a good old boy, southern preacher, who writes a blog with another friend called Two Bubbas in a Bible. And he paraphrased today's gospel story like this. By throwing a party and inviting your friends and family and your neighbors who are in your social class, you have made sure that you have lost nothing, risked nothing, spent nothing, ultimately sacrificed nothing, actually done nothing that qualifies you as a host in the spiritual sense of the word. You have invited only people who can afford to return the favor and invite you to their house and feed you there. This is a nice social event, it's good fellowship, great barbecue, but it's not real hospitality, not in the biblical sense. And there you can see where our two middle values concerning hospitality and diversity come from. 
I'm always clear to explain to people that the phrase dynamic hospitality does not refer to a book of etiquette and proper table setting, although I am in favor of generally civil behavior and attractive and ordered, well-ordered environments. But no, the kind of hospitality we're talking about here goes to the heart of God's gracious invitation to all humankind and the subsequent responsibility we share to model that in our own lives. It sounds rather boring and pedantic, said like this, but in fact, this kind of hospitality lies at the very heart of what sent Jesus to the cross. I think that's important to hang on to. Because in Jesus' day, just like now, lots of folks didn't like lots of other folks for all sorts of inconsequential reasons, say their race or the names they assigned to God or where they worshipped or where they lived or how much they were worth, who they knew, and so forth and so on. Pride and vainglory, arrogance and selfishness, tribalism and militarism were as prevalent then as they are now. And so folks tended to slice and dice people into those that had merit and those that didn't have merit. In the case of today's gospel reading, the slicing and dicing Jesus confronted was pretty much within the same ethnic national family, those who had merit and standing and those who did not. But in other stories, he he steps way beyond the bounds of the Jews of Jerusalem to extend God's hospitality to people way beyond the bounds of normal consideration. He just blows all of that up. And not so very long after Jesus' crucifixion, Paul will write famously that Christ abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity. That's a, that's a breathtaking piece of theology right there. Abolished the law with all of its commandments and ordinances, and I might say boundaries, that he might create in himself one new humanity. And Paul also wrote, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, friends, there are Christians and denominations today who believe that the communion table must, as an example, stay reserved for those who are in agreement about the nature of Jesus Christ. And while I respect the piety and sincerity of those who hold this point of view, I still look to the gospel for any shred of evidence for the necessity of human-made rules and regulations for gaining access to the God of Jesus. And I find none. (laughs) I find none. What I do find is a relentless invitation to God's bounty that those who follow along the way of Jesus are called and meant to emulate. It's for this reason that if we share this mind of Christ among ourselves, the communion table is actually a foretaste of the consummation of God's kingdom where humanity is reconciled with God and one another. And why on earth would I turn anyone away who wanted to be there? Why would I do that? It's almost as though those who would install a bouncer at the door might believe that any person in their givenness 
could defile the table. And yet, considering Jesus' blunt assessment in our gospel today, what affronts and defiles God's intention, most of all, is human arrogance and hypocrisy. I don't see how you can read that gospel lesson any other way. God knows the precious church that has formed the creeds and arrangements for inclusion and exclusion has from time to time failed rather dramatically over the course of its existence in executing the simple but completely confounding arrangements Jesus taught like. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What saves us from ourselves in this, friends, is God's relentless hospitality towards each one of us. Because who among us really has the purity of intention and belief to withstand a thorough cross-examination about the content of our commitments on this point? I don't. I could not withstand a cross-examination but God's doors are open to me even so. You know, as the church has struggled forward through the centuries, it has come to discover and affirm that the sun, not the earth, is the center of the heavenly systems. People lost their lives over that. That slavery is not divinely ordained that women are most certainly not property, and that all persons stand equal in the eyes of justice. But you know, these battles, which I think can be thought of as battles about God's hospitality, were fought fiercely for generations before an enlightened wisdom emerged that was consistent with Jesus' heart and mind. Christianity has always been at its best when advancing God's radical word of grace, God's hospitality. This is the engine that builds homes and schools and hospitals and colleges and grounds the hope of second, third, and fourth chances at life. When asked how often we should forgive, Jesus' response was not seven times, but, (laughs) you remember, 70 times, seven times. Forgiveness unlimited, in other words. This astounding word of grace is more than we can conceptualize. Still, to be followers of Jesus is to allow ourselves to be captured by a love that is larger than our own that hopefully will take us into the future every day, making us bigger and bigger and bigger. Today, August 28th, just happens to be the anniversary of the Civil Rights March on Washington and Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech. Reflecting on the event's historic significance, New York Times columnist David Brooks explained that The organizers wanted a set of tactics that were deeply rooted in biblical teaching. Now, I want you to entertain the irony in that statement compared to today's cultural moment. That this social movement of justice 
was driven by biblical teaching. And that was written by a columnist in our nation's preeminent secular journal. He continues, that meant the tactics had to start with love, not hate, nonviolence, not violence, renunciation, not self-indulgence. As befitting what was largely a religious movement, the idea was not only to change society but to work an inner transformation. They clung to this in a way that is humbling for the rest of us who stumble and fall in far easier circumstances. The idea was to reduce ugliness in the world by reducing ugliness in yourself. King argued that unearned suffering is redemptive. It would uplift people involved in this kind of action. It would impose self-restraint. At their best, the leaders understood that even people in the middle of just causes can be corrupted. They can become self-righteous. They can become smug as they move forward, cruel as they organize into groups, simplistic as they rely on propaganda to mobilize the masses. Their hearts can harden as their enemies become more vicious. The strategy of renunciation and the absorbing of suffering was meant to guard against all that, an exercise in applied theology. And again, I would repeat, it was an astonishing cultural moment and importantly rooted in theology, though in no sectarian manner but larger, reaching beyond normal bounds the way Jesus reached, beyond arrogant self-regard, honoring the sacred genetics of all persons, each one formed in the image of God. It was born in the church and fueled by the church. This recognition that all were equal in God's eyes and that justice should be equal. I lived through those days, and those of you that are my age, at least, or older, remember that the fiercest resistance came also from within the church. And the question that has always flashed in front of my eyes when I think about this is, what gospel on earth was that church hearing that was so resistant to this message? What alternative gospel were they hearing? How did they read a text like we read today and the words from Hebrews that we read today? And you see, it stands as testimony to how boundary we are ourselves and how hard it is for us to hear things we don't have an instinctive like for. And yet, nevertheless, upon second and third thought, is profoundly true. So you see, I see a titanium cord attached to today's gospel and the logic of the Hebrews who wrote, let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. 
And then these sentences, which I find searing. Remember those who are in prison as though you yourself was in, were in prison with them. Those who are being tortured as though you yourself were being tortured with them. Is it, is it possible for you to situate yourself in that space? And do you see what a radical discipline that would be? Boy, it hit me again this week as I was reflecting on it. And it's so easy to let that discipline float away because it's demanding, isn't it? I mean, it's really demanding. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And you know, friends, the, the phrase dynamic hospitality hardly touches the gravitas of this graceful and powerful gospel. But then I'm not certain what phrase actually could touch this. It's not prone to propaganda, is it? Or to marketing, cute and clever marketing statements. It's not susceptible to that. It doesn't fit with that, does it? It can only speak to people who have hearts that are open and willing to consider it. You know, I've been thinking and writing about this for decades. For four decades. And I am still brought to my knees before the sheer size and scope and power of the love we're attempting to articulate in our words and deeds. It is awesome and spectacular. And surely the one thing that is a cause for hope for humankind. Dynamic hospitality is the engine of hope. 